Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2. As Brett was reading the first couple verses, John is giving some signs, some signs of fellowship, not, not only fellowship with God, but fellowship with each other. And he lays the foundation in verses 1 and 2 by explaining that Christ is the righteous one. He's the perfect payment for the sin of all mankind. Because number one, he's in human form, so he's one for one. And he's also God, so that his sacrifice is infinite. Sufficient to pay for the sin of the entire world. And we also find in that same passage that he stands as the advocate for the Christian. It's based on him and his righteousness that we stand before God as completely in right standing. And yet we know that can be broken and the fellowship can be broken when we sin. And that same Jesus stands before God as an advocate and he tells the Father that our sin, even after salvation, has been covered by his blood and paid for. And our fellowship with God is renewed when we repent and ask forgiveness of that sin. In verses 3 through 6, John gives us the first two of the signs of, of several that help us understand we're in fellowship with God and in fellowship with fellow believers. One is if we obey his commands. In other words, he says if we know God or say we know God, but we don't obey his commands, then our actual life is contrary to what we're saying we are. And John would say that person's actually lying. He's not in the truth. He's not in the light. He also says in those verses leading up to verse 7 that we would be imitators of God in our behavior. It's a second sign or a second assurance, if you would, that we're in fellowship with God. In other words, if God were abiding in us, the life of God in us, it would stand to reason that we would begin to be imitators of Christ, who is God here on the flesh, or God here in the flesh. And if we say that we're in Christ, or we say that we're in God, but that walk or that imitation isn't there, John will say we don't have the fellowship that we think we have. And so the signs of love is the next one, and that's what I want to kind of look at today, beginning in verse 7. And there's a command that he's going to give that we have to love, and if he's giving us a command to love, then he also has given us the ability to fulfill that command. And I want to look at the nature of the command to love each other and to love God and be in fellowship with him. And then I want to look at three different individuals that John lays out to help us understand this concept. Some translators start in verse 7 with, with brethren. And it looks like from early manuscripts, it's, it's preferred to say beloved. Difference between brethren and beloved is, is not so insignificant. In other words, when we think of brethren, we think of fellow brothers. We think of camaraderie. When you think of somebody who's beloved, it's a step higher than that. We know John is talking to people who many of them he may have led to the Lord. And John has faithfully loved them and he's faithfully given himself to them. 
And I think in the context, the idea of John saying, you are my beloved, would be proper. So beginning in verse 7, it says this, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John's beginning to tell us the nature of this particular command. First of all, he tells us up front, it's not something new. It's not something that you don't know about. He's claiming that it's something that's not really new in its quality. It's not really new in its kind. He's not introducing something that we have not already come to know. But it's a command that they possessed and heard. That, that idea when he's saying this new commandment, but it's an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. It's something at a point of time that they possessed and they're still having. It's old. I mean, it's not recent, John would say. But it doesn't imply that it's something ancient, something way, way in the past. Rather, it's something that is going to be long in duration. And it says it's something that the Christian possessed at the beginning. So we've got to try and figure out what it means by at the beginning. And at the beginning doesn't mean that it's at the beginning of time that man just instinctively had brotherly love and, and love for God. We know Adam and Eve loved God, and everything in the garden was innocent. But it didn't take long for that to fall. So the love that John is talking about is something that's being commanded at this point. Because when the human nature changed and was corrupted, love wouldn't be natural. But John's saying to his audience, the love he's talking about is something that's commanded, so it's coming later on, still at a point of time, but coming later on, not way back at the beginning of time. Some think it could refer to something in the Old Testament, it's kind of unlikely, but somebody could have been teaching this topic from the Old Testament. Because excuse me, Leviticus 19.18 says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it could refer to something like that that they had heard at some point in time. Some think it could be Christ's own statement that happened about 60 years before John writes this in John 15, 12. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. The, the you had is in an imperfect tense. And this helps us understand that it was something that happened at a specific time. And it occurred at a definite point, And it's something that is continuing. So the question is, what would fit that? What would fit the idea that it was a specific action that took place at a particular time in a different, at a definite point in the past and is continuing on? John is pointing to, to something that is most probably the point when they became saved. And it's at that point point that they understood for the first time the love of God by experience. And it's something that is continuing on even to that day. And in that sense, it's something that is old. Romans 5.8 would say this, but, the love, but God shows his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. And John wants them to understand the genuine love of God that they experienced and understood at salvation is the love that he's talking about right now. But then he says this, and this is where it gets a little bit confusing. At the same time, even though you know this love of God and you've seen it manifest in Christ on the cross, and you've experienced this at salvation and it's continuing on, he says in verse 8, but at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, this other part of the nature of this is although it's old, it's something that you had at a point in time and has carried on. It's actually something new, too. So what is it new that John's talking about? He's talking about this time that it's something that is new in quality. <coughs> Excuse me. It's something that's new now since they experience that is continuing to grow. And it's continuing to expand. Its newness is not a change from the past, but it's a freshness. It's an invigoration of what they had in the past. It's something that continues to grow in the Christian. He makes the statement, it's true in him and in you. In other words, it's true in Christ and it's true in you. So this newness of quality that was perfectly demonstrated in Jesus Christ coming on the cross and giving his life for us is, is seen, <coughs> excuse me, because of what he sacrificed on our behalf. And the Spirit now dwells inside of us. And the same newness is true to us today. Because here's what's happening because of salvation. And he's starting to describe what's going on inside of us. Because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Unlike, unlike Christ, before salvation, we were blinded by darkness. We lived in darkness. We were followers of Satan, the Bible would say. We'd say, no, we weren't. But we were. We lived out life for self. And then the light of God comes. And the light of God is everything that is consistent with God and everything that is true in God. And it's been revealed in Jesus Christ and it's in stark contrast to the darkness that we were in. And when God saves a person, the light of the gospel, we say, was shined on him. And they believed and they accepted. They're translated from the kingdom of darkness, which we were born into, and they're translated into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.12 would say this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And this all happened at a point of time. And this light is continuing to have effect on the Christian afterwards so that the darkness is passing. Passing is in present tense. It's indicating that the light, <coughs> excuse me, that the 
that because of the light, the darkness that we were in and the darkness that we were translated out for in salvation is continuing to be pushed out away from us. And this process will continue until Christ returns, until he banishes darkness altogether, until death is put to death, until sin is destroyed. And Paul's, or excuse me, John's saying that's something that's continuing in the Christian now. As we continued in the light and we continue in the truth of the gospel, it has an effect of pushing away the darkness. In other words, we, we don't know everything we need to know right away. We're not complete in Christ right away as far as how we live life out right now. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with those things. But it's the light that is working in a continuous process to push out the darkness. And he makes a statement, and the true light is already shining. True, again, is, is telling us a little bit about the nature of the light. It's genuine. It's real. It's from God. And it stands in opposition to all false doctrines and all false teachings. In all false religions, there's just only one real religion. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. John, in his day, was combating Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed one of these truths that everything in the world that we see and can touch is evil. And the body that you have is evil. And the idea is that the spirit is good and God is good, so the idea is and the goal is to get the body to be dispelled of its spirit so the spirit can break free from that which is evil. Problem was there was only few people that had this knowledge that would lead people to that ability to do that and that's always a framework of a cult. Limited people having all the knowledge that everyone has to have. And John's combating this, and he's saying to the Christian, the true light is already shining, it's continuing to shine. Even though people might come into a false religion and still feel religious, they might go through the processes that they tell them to go through, and they'll feel like they're doing things that are spiritual. They're just not in the light. They're just not in accordance to the gospel. So really for John, oh, thank you. Really, for John, the genuine gospel light of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can release man from the bondage of himself and from the bondage of the darkness that everybody is born into. And it's the continuing of this light in the Christian's life that continues to dispel the darkness, if you would. True light already shining is in the present tense. So it's indicating that God's light is continuing to have its process. It's continuing to illuminate what is dark. It's continuing to, dis to give off a brightness that if things are put underneath it for inspection, brings to light, whether it's genuine or not. The reality that everybody who is a Christian experienced was that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf is the embodiment of that light, if you would. 
And they've experienced and understand that they were translated from one kingdom into another kingdom. And we still realize after salvation that we, we aren't perfect. We still struggle with sin. We still have areas, if you would, that we might call dark, that we're really not understanding fully or really engaging in and obeying in the commands of God. We grow in that. And that light continues to push back the darkness so that we have clarity. John gives an application of this in three individuals' lives. In chapter, excuse me, in verse 9, he makes a statement. Whoever says he is in this light, this light that was received at the beginning of salvation, that brought us to salvation, the light that continues to give us clarity of who God is and what he wants us to do, Whoever says they're in that light, they possess it, and hates his brother, is still in darkness. In other words, an individual's claim to be in the light and his actual activity has to be consistent with it. This individual is believing that his life is characterized by godliness in general, but not necessarily characterized by the light to its full extent, like it needs to be. Because there's a glaring problem in the life. He hates his brother. And for John, all through his book, it's, it's either or or. Either you're in the light or you're not in the light. Either you're in darkness or you're not in darkness. And the contrast between someone saying I'm in the light, but I hate my fellow brother that is in the light. For John is saying you're not really in the light because it's not consistent. And he's not talking about a, just a occasional disagreement that two Christians might have because we have those. He's not even talking about the times that we might even just kind of walk away from each other and be a little bit miffed and relationship is broken. Th those things happen in Christianity. He's talking about somebody who characteristically hates the brothers. That's what he's talking about. That's a different level, a different thought process. He has a hateful attitude and ill will towards fellow Christians. So his actions and his heart attitude for John is placing him in the realm of darkness, even though he's saying that he's in the realm of light. There is hope, though, because it says still in the darkness. It gives the idea that he doesn't have to stay there. Decision can be made. He could come to the light. The light could have its way on his heart. He could repent. But I think in John's thought process at, at this point, because of the activity of the individual, it's bearing out that his his claim that he's in the light is not a true claim. Then he gives us individual number two in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. In other words, loving fellow Christians is not something that's sporadic in the Christian life. It's just habitual character. Do we do it perfect? 
No. Do we do it to its full extent? No. Is it characteristic of light? Is it something that is growing in us? Yeah. But it's habitual in character. Even with those Christians that might not hold Christianity in the same way we do, there is still an understanding that they're on the same team. And there's still a love that goes out towards them. The the love here that he's talking about is not an emotional love that we think of when we're we're Twitter-pated or when we have the fuzzy-wuzzies for somebody and we we just feel something. It's not what Paul's talking about. This is actually a love that comes out in the will. It's working in conjunction with the will. It's a love that has purpose. It's a love that is always seeking the good and what is most beneficial for the object that it's loving. This isn't natural to us as fallen men. This is something that only can be changed by the light. It's something that we can only continue in as we continue in the light. By the very fact that this person is practicing love as God is love, reveals two things about him. In other words, he's living out what he knows of God. Proves two things about him. One, it proves that he's abiding in the light. The action now and the outwardness, again, outward action never brings salvation. It never gives us merit for righteousness to add to what Christ did on the cross. John is using that as a way to reveal what is actually in the heart, and it's really revealing in this person's heart that he abides in the light. And then he makes the statement, and there is no cause for stumbling. In him there's no cause for stumbling. The word, the word in is kind of critical. If it's neutral, and you'll have to bear with me as I explain that. I'm not a Greek expert but we need to know how the words use because it makes a difference in how we hold the passage. The word in, if it's neuter, then the pronoun that would follow it would be it. And it would read like this, like the RSV would read. And in it, there's no cause for stumbling. Or in the light in which he lives and moves offers nothing that will cause stumbling. So if you live in the light, you won't ever have cause for stumbling. That could be one interpretation of it. If in is a masculine pronoun, then it would follow with the word him. Like the ESV would say, and in him, in the person who's in the light or standing in the light or secure in the light, In him, there's no cause for stumbling. And the cause of stumbling can be twofold too. It could mean this. That the person, because they're walking in love, does not place stumbling blocks in other Christians' lives so that they stumble. Because love wouldn't do that. Love would not cause one Christian to place another thing in front of another Christian that could cause them to stumble in a Christian's life. It also could mean this. It could mean that the person who is walking in love is not going to be tripped up or will not be caused to stumble because of something that's been placed in front of them by another person. And they won't get offended by the other person. In other words, 
Loves allow them to become unoffendable. Do what you want to me. And I'm not going to be offended because I love you. And I'm looking past what you're doing. And I'm looking deeper into the heart of what you're doing. It could be that too. Psalms 119, 165 says this, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. They're, they're unoffendable, if you would. Probably God, John has both in mind. When there's, whenever we come to a passage where two things could be very, very, very likely, I usually don't choose one over the other. I go, why, why not hold both? Because they're both great truths. They both can be supported in other places. John may have both in mind here. That's where the Christian's supposed to be. This should be the pattern of life for us. And then he gives us the third individual. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, whoever hates his brother, so that's the attitude, that's the character. So take a character of hatred, a behavior that is hatred, he's walking in the darkness, and a lack of understanding that he's even in the darkness. And you have somebody that is really in spiritual darkness. Unless God does a miracle in the person's life as he only can, they're not coming back. Because they don't even realize they're in the darkness. And you can't even convince them they're in the darkness. You might come across unsaved people and talk about sin. And they'll go, yeah. Yeah, I do things wrong. I'm in sin. And then you might share with them Christ and they go, that's good for you. But not for me. He's, he's in the darkness. But he realizes he's still in sin, and he realizes he's not perfect. This person can't even understand the darkness that they're in. This is almost outside of God's miracle, a hopeless case. He's not making a verbal claim that he's in the light at all, like the first guy did. He made the claim, but just wasn't living the life. This one's not really making the claim. Probably somebody that is connected in some way to Christianity, but has never made the claim of salvation. People just assume he's a Christian. But he's in conflict because he has this attitude of hatred towards those he should be loving. But he doesn't even look at it as a conflict because he's completely blind from the darkness that's been around him. So he's in a horrible, misfortunate way. Because he has no, no true knowledge of the nature of the road that he's walking on. It's going to end up falling off a cliff. And he doesn't even realize it. Because the question is, why, why would somebody, even if they were lost, talking, talking about a, an, an unbeliever, why would they deliberately walk down a street that they knew would end in them falling off a cliff and dying? Unless they were just completely blind that they were even on a path that was going to end that way. And that would be the situation of the individual here. Continues to walk on a path of hatred. 
because he's become so blinded that he cannot even see the spiritual need. Hebert, in his commentary, shares this illustration. And I didn't realize this. I would pass this thing all my way down to school in 75 all the time. And it's Mammoth Cave. And in Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, there's a river that goes through it. And I would think from caves, there's nothing living in the river. But there is. In fact, there's fish living in that river. And what they found as scientists started to study those fish is the fish had eye sockets. All the genetics of the fish were as they should be, but their eyes were undeveloped, and they didn't work. They were completely blind fish living in a completely dark environment. Their, their thought process is it was because living in the dark environment all the time gave no necessity for the eyes to be used, and gradually the eyes just pretty much became not non-effective. They, they weren't in their offspring producing fish with completely active eyes. They just were now bearing fish that were deficient already. And it's a kind of a picture of somebody walking in that darkness and not realizing that they're in the darkness. And what ought to be the, the heart of the Christian as they look at individuals that they work with Individuals that they do hobbies with, individuals in this world that may be walking in that very darkness thinking life is great and not even understanding that their paths are on, what ought to be the heartbeat of the Christian? They need the light. They need the light. So application for today, if you find yourself in a point of darkness because do Christians to some extent they can't walk in darkness like they did before they were saved but I can stubbornly and willfully just disobey what God wants and I can be in conflict with other people and I can feel very much the prompting of the spirit to rectify that situation but doggone ago I can be stubborn enough to just say no just don't know no no, 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 no. That's how we are sometime inside. So if we're in any of that type of situation, go get it fixed. I mean, that's what John would say. Go, go, go get it fixed so that nothing stands between because the walk of the Christian is that unity And it demonstrates that to the world around us so that they understand the love of God in a real and living way. If salvation's kind of stagnant to you, because it's supposed to be new in an invigorating way, and because we're in the Word and we're in the light, it continues to be invigorated because that's what the light does. Maybe a good time, just like we do at communion, to think back at the time you were saved. And allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the love of God in you or for you at that particular time so that we can begin sharing that to others as we ought to. Sorry, my my mind drew a blank. 
and I'm out of notes. <laughs> so it must mean God wants me to pray and end the service today. But those were my three applications. I had a fourth, but I scribbled it out. And there's probably a good reason I scribbled it out. So I'm going to go with that right now. <clears throat> so you won't have anything else to tease me about um, than what's already sitting there in my life. But may God help us to walk in the light as he's in the light. Because the light continues to dispel the darkness as the Christian continues to grow in the light. Almighty God, we are thank you. We are thankful for your word. We are very much thankful for the action you show towards us in loving us when we didn't love you. Thank you for sending your son on the cross. Thank you, dear God, for pulling us out of the domain of darkness and putting us in the domain of light. Lord, please help us with all of our hearts to stay in your word so that your light might continue to shine on all the events in our world, to shine on all the things that are going on in our daily lives, to help us to see them like you see them. And most of all, dear God, that we might see our hearts at any given moment like you do. And Lord, may you give us the humility to respond in a way that we are actually part of that light. And we're desperately wanting to have that relationship, not only with you, but Lord, with the people that you've given us to be around here at this church. You've been very kind and very gracious. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us to do the best we can to not only build each other up, but to go into the world that's around us, dear God, that may be walking in a road or are walking on a road that looks absolutely, to some people, grand to them, not even aware of the end. And so I pray, dear God, that you would give us compassion in that regard too, so that our love might be like your love, and we would give you praise, and we would give you glory in your name. Amen.